I was going to, and you would see if you have notes there. If you do not have notes and you would like um, an outline of my service this morning or my sermon, if you would just raise your hand and we'll be sure to get one of those to you. Um, you'll, you'll notice that the AM sermon is labeled to be John and the PM sermon is labeled to be Job. I had determined this morning to switch our series to begin or to finish our Job series in the, mo- in the evening and to finish our John series in the morning. However, as I was refreshing myself on my sermon yesterday and praying and asking the Lord to speak and work through it, um, I felt um, the necessity of continuing on in Job in the morning, at least for this week. And so we are going to be in Job again this morning. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Job 20. Job 20. I trust that if, if you have a calendar and you've been looking through that calendar, uh, you know that we are preaching weekly through Job, and I trust that you've been reading through that passage. Uh, we are covering two chapters in the book of Job this morning. Two chapters is more than I can uh, read and still get you out of here in a timely fashion. So I don't always read the entire passage in Job. I encourage you to read it during the week so that you can know where I'm going, what is being mentioned, and then, of course, I hit the highlights. I summarize everything as we are, we are directing ourselves toward the main point. So we, we will look in Job 20, and specifically at verses, um, or excuse me, chapters 20 and 21 this morning. And as we begin, you'll notice the title of the sermon is The Danger of Self-Sufficiency. You know, as we think about human nature, as we think about you and I as humans, we recognize that humans have tendencies. There are things in life which people do, certainly because of the culture they're in. There are things in life that people do because of the way they've been taught. There are things in life that people do because of the environment within which they have grown up. But there are other things about human nature, about humans and their tendencies that simply are. These are just human tendencies. And one of those human tendencies... One of those human states of being, as it were, is that of self-sufficiency. Now, we live in a culture that, in the past many years, has uniquely gone in a different direction culturally than self-sufficiency. Financially and materially, at least, our culture is teaching everyone the exact opposite of self-sufficiency. We live in a culture that is teaching people to become government-dependent rather than self-dependent. But that's not really what I'm talking about this morning. As I speak about the danger of self-sufficiency, as we frame our minds around this danger, there are many ways, particularly in the heart, in the spirit, in the mind of a man, in which it is a human tendency to be self-sufficient. There is a tendency within every man's mind and every man's heart to think that he is enough, that he has enough, and that he is sufficient within himself to live this life and to get into the next in good shape, in fine standing. And that's what Job will be speaking about this morning in Job 21. Now we're beginning in verse, or in chapter 20, with Zophar. And as I have typically done in our Job sermons, I'm going to first begin by summarizing the debate. We'll we'll summarize Job 20, we'll summarize Job 21, and then I will draw application out following the summary. So let's begin in Job 20 with Zophar. I remind you as we begin, this is his second argument we we recall, and let's remember his first argument, his previous argument. His previous argument was found in Job 11. Now, it's been a while since I was preaching in Job 11, uh, many weeks now, so let me refresh you on what Zophar said in Job 11. 
in his argument, Zophar strongly encouraged Job to repent of whatever sin might have been in his life. And Zophar said, in doing so, I am very confident that you, Job, will be restored by God. Recall the premise. The premise is that Job has had tremendously terrible things happen to him. His circumstances have been terrible. Each of his so-called comforters is coming up to him and saying, well, we know that the terrible circumstances in your life are simply the side effects of sin in your life. We, we don't see sin, Job. We don't know what that sin is, but it's got to be there. Job is proclaiming his innocence before God, and Zophar says, look, Job, whatever sin it is in your life, I know it's there because of the consequences, but if you'll just repent, I know that God will restore you. Now recall Job's response to him. His response was that God's ways are much higher than man's ways, and that Zophar was oversimplifying God's actions. He says, so far, it's oversimplistic to say that just because bad things happen to a man, that means that he's a sinner. And, just, and when good things happen to a man, that means that he's righteous. That's oversimplistic, Zophar. That's the context. Let's step into his current argument in Job 20. Now, of any of the three men that we have seen a second time around, Zophar's argument is most clearly connected to that which we have seen before. And that's why it's so important that we remember the, second, the first argument as we get into the second argument. Notice as we, do, as we, we look here in verse 1 of, John, of Job 20. Then answered Zophar the Naamathite and said, Therefore do my thoughts cause me to answer, and for this I make haste. I have heard the check of my reproach, and the spirit of my understanding causeth me to answer. Zophar tells Job, Okay, Job, uh, you, you responded to me way back in Job 11, Job 12, and I've been thinking about that while you've been fighting with these other guys, and now I'm ready with my response. I've been thinking about your check of my reproach, your, your response to my telling you you're a sinner, and here is now my response to your response. Very typical debate fashion here. And the thrust of his argument is found in verses 4 and 5 of Job 20. Look at it with me. He says, Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment? Any triumph, Zophar says, that the wicked has in this life is very short, and eventually his wickedness is going to catch up to him. Now, by this, Zophar is attempting to paint Job as one of these wicked men. He, Zophar says, Well, you know, you know Job, you, you had it good for a while. You had your camels, and you had your oxen, and you had your servants, and you had your land, and you had your, your many children. You had it good for a while, but your sin has finally caught up with you. And this is what we see, Job. We see that our sin finally catch up, catches up with us, and at some point, God is going to allow all of those things that we have collected to go away once again. Now, in verses 8 through 11, as he continues, Zophar summarizes how the life of a wicked man will go. Look at it with me. It says, he shall fly away as a dream and shall not be found. Yea, he shall be chased away as a vision of the night. The eye also which saw him shall see him no more, neither shall his place any more behold him. His children shall seek to please the poor, and his hand shall restore their goods. His bones are full of the sin of his youth, which shall lie down with him in the dust. He states that God will cause the wicked to become evident their wickedness to become evident and the consequences of that wickedness will be so terrible, will be so awful that that wicked man's children will see his wickedness and will say, we're just going to give everything back. We're going to give it to the poor. We're going to give it back to those that we took it from because God judges the wicked. 
What a wonderful thought, isn't it? In our minds, what a wonderful thought. As I was preparing this yesterday, I write my sermons uh, many weeks in advance, but as I was preparing for this, I thought about my Facebook account this week. The beginning of this week was a tragedy in Boston. And after that tragedy, and particularly after the suspect was apprehended later on in the week, I saw so many people saying, good, 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 so glad. He's going to get what's coming to him, all of these things. And as I read those, and as I was preparing for this sermon this morning, I thought, isn't it, we, we love it. As humans, that's another tendency. We love it when evil is recompensed, do we not? We love it when those men and women who do wrong, who lie, who cheat, who steal, who deceive, get caught in their own devices when they finally get their comeuffins, when they finally get the recompense for their error. And this is Zophar's perspective. He says, okay, you know, the, 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 the wicked may prosper for a time, but eventually their sin will find them out. But that's not quite realistic in this life, is it? That's not always what we see in this life. We'll get back to that in just a moment. In verses 12 through 22 of Job 20, Zophar uses an illustration to describe how he perceives the life of a wicked man. And let me just summarize it for you. He states that the life of a wicked man is like a banquet with food and richness. The wicked, they go down the line of this banquet and they fill up their plates, maybe two plates, maybe three plates, with all of the richness and the food and the butter and the cream and all of these wonderful things in this life. Exotic dishes, cheeses, seafood of every sort. They fill to the full with these delicacies. They are happy in their fullness and they sit at this banquet in pleasure of all that they have surrounding them. And then Zophar says, but at some point, the belly of the wicked begins to hurt. At some point, there's a pain deep down and the wicked man realizes that that seafood had been in the fridge just a little too long. Or there had just been a little taint of poisoning in it and it begins to burn in their belly and what was delicious and wonderful and great for them ends up being like the poison of asps. That's a snake. Like the poison of a snake in their belly. Zophar gives this illustration and notice his description in verse 14 and verse 15. Yet his meat in his bowels is turned. It is the gall of asps within him. He hath swallowed down riches and he shall vomit them up again. God shall cast them out of his belly. Now, this is Zophar's philosophy and he finishes his thought in verses 23 through 29 by describing what he perceives to be the final end of the wicked. After realizing that all of his abundance was nothing more than poison, notice what the rich man or the, this wicked man perceives in verse 23. When he is about to fill his belly, God shall cast the fury of his wrath upon him and shall rain it upon him while he is eating. All of the wicked man's increase will finally come to naught and he will become an example for all men to see and to fear God and to fear such wickedness. Now, as we think of this description of the man Zophar, and this is why Job is so difficult to interpret, there are kernels of truth in this. But as much as we could desire it to be this way, 
As much as our sensibilities of justice are touched by the thought of God laying to waste the wicked for their actions, making an example of unrighteousness so that all who see him, all who see this wicked man who has been punished, who has been chastened, would finally decide and decidedly turn away from their sin. This is not what we see in the world all the time, is it? This is not how we always see God work. Upon further consideration, though, perhaps we should be glad that this is not how God always works. Perhaps we should be glad that this is not always the way of the world because for every man that we look upon and we say, their wickedness, I wish God would just smite them, how many times could man have looked upon us and said, their wickedness, I wish God would have just smitten you. See, because there is no man that is righteous before God. There is no man that in himself has what it takes. There is no man who has the right to look upon another man's sin and say, wow, I am so much better because we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, you are yet dead in your trespasses and sins. And so had it not been for God's long-suffering, even upon the wicked, especially upon the wicked, we would all be hopeless. We would all have been lost. Well, Zophar has given his thoughts. In Job 21, Job answers Zophar. Let's look at it together. Job refutes Zophar's generalizations in three ways in Job 21. In verses 7 through 13, Job makes his first statement. Look at it with me. He asks, Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Their seed is established in their sight with them and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull gendereth and faileth not, their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. They take the timbrel and the harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. Job states that Zophar's illustration is interesting, you know, the banquet and filling up food and then it's like poison and in their bellies and they, they eventually will, will feel bad. But he said it's interesting but not realistic so far. It's interesting but not realistic. The wicked still live. Wicked men become old. Wicked men become mighty in power. The children of the wicked follow in their footsteps. They learn of their parents' wickedness and they say, look, my parents' wickedness has brought them money, has brought them comfort, has brought them luxury, has brought them happiness, and I'm going to rejoice in it. And these men, Job says, having money and prosperity to buy all of their happiness, even at the expense of others, go down to the grave in a moment. They die in the riches. They die in the comfort. And you know, as we think about life, let's be realistic. This happens. There are wicked men in this world who will live out their entire days in their wickedness without the judgment of God upon them. They will not lose all of their possessions. They will not lose all of their goods. Their children will not one day look at them and say, wow, they really got judged for their wickedness. I'm going to do something different. There are men that go down to the grave just as wicked as, as any other day of their lives and they go down to the grave fine with that. See, this is where Zophar got confused. Zophar was intent on material, and we've seen this all throughout Job, material and physical judgment for sin. Job is reminding us once again that the judgment of a wicked man 
is when he stands before God. The judgment of the wicked man is when he answers God for his actions in this life. His second statement is in verses 14 and 15. Look at it with me. Therefore, Job says, they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Because the riches and the prosperity of the wicked is so great, they find no need for God. The wicked weigh everything in the balance of personal gain and material prosperity. And these weighing in the balance of personal gain and material prosperity don't always favor the servant of God, do they? The servant of God is not always the man that is materially prosperous in this world. The servant of God is not always the man that is going to have everything, the health and the wealth. That is not the the description that Jesus Christ gives of the servant of God in the New Testament, is it? Jesus Christ says that the servant of God is the one that must be willing to leave all and follow. The one that must count the praise of God greater than the praise of men. And so Job says, and this is what Jesus Christ says in the Gospels, remember when the rich young ruler comes to him and says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus Christ says, you must keep the commandments. And he says, all these have I done for my youth. And Jesus says, one more thing. Take what you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come follow after me. Jesus wasn't saying he had to be poor physically, but that he had to count nothing more worthy than Christ in his life. There could be nothing elevated to the level of God in that young man's life. And it says the young man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And Jesus Christ, remember what he told the disciples? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't saying there that a rich man can't be saved. What he was saying is rich men, and this is what Job is saying as well, amazing how the Old Testament complements the New and the New the Old. Scripture is the best commentary on itself. It is one book written by God. Job is saying here that when the rich become prosperous, they become self-sufficient. They say, why do I need God? I've got everything I want without Him. I'm comfortable. I'm happy. I've got all the possessions. I've got the health. I can see the best doctors when I don't have the health. I'm in fine shape. Why do I need God? And so Zophar, his idea was that the wicked will turn to God because of their suffering. Job says, I'm going to turn your illustration on his head. That the wicked don't come to God because they don't suffer. Because they're not on the street begging for bread. Because they're not having to live homeless. Because they don't have all of the health problems that might come with a transient lifestyle or whatever the case may be. And so they say, I don't need God. I'm doing just fine. Now Job's third statement, as he finishes his argument, reminds Zophar that though in this life the wicked might find prosperity and self-sufficiency, this same self-sufficiency dooms them on the day of judgment. Job had an eternal perspective. 
And that is what we are going to spend our application time on this morning. Our second point, and if you are taking notes, this is where you'll see the two points this morning uh, that are on the notes I handed out, or if you're taking notes, there will be two types of self-sufficiency that we are going to look at this morning through two needful warnings against an attitude of self-sufficiency in our lives. Let's take a look at them. What I'd like us to see this morning is that self-sufficiency is the enemy of righteousness. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of righteousness. Now, there are two types of self-sufficiency that we oftentimes experience in this life. The first type of self-sufficiency is you believing that you don't need any help or support in this life to be successful. The idea that I don't need anything in this life. I've got it all under control. I don't need anything. Now, we have all seen what this self-sufficiency looks like, haven't we? I'm not going to spend much time here this morning because we've all seen it. I remember when I was first learning how to rollerblade. I was probably six, seven years old, and my, my sister was two years older than me, but we did a lot of things together. We learned how, when she started learning how to ride a bike, I had to learn how to ride a bike too. And then one day she got a pair of rollerblades and I really wanted to learn as well. And so my parents went ahead and got me a pair of rollerblades and she and I were both learning how to do these rollerblades. I've always been kind of a um, reinvent the wheel kind of a guy. I've always been the kind of a guy that, okay, uh, just give them to me and I'll figure it out. Just let me do it. I'll get it. It might take a little longer. It might be a little harder, but I'm going to get it. And so I would put these rollerblades on and the elbow pads and the knee pads and the wrist guards and the helmet. My parents were very careful. And I'd get out there and I would fall. And my parents would come and try to pick me up and I'd shrug my shoulder, say, no, no, I've got this and I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And I would fall and I would fall and I would fall. Well, there's a problem with being self-sufficient when you're learning something like ice skating or rollerblading. And the, the problem with rollerblading when you're being self-sufficient is you have wheels on the bottom of your feet. And so because you have wheels on the bottom of your feet, if you're on your knees and you want to get on your feet, what do you do? You're on your knees, you put one foot up, you put your weight on that foot and you balance as the other foot comes up. When you have wheels on the bottom of your feet, that is much more difficult to accomplish because when you put the weight on four wheels which are on the bottom of your feet what do those wheels want to do they want to go forward and so i'm trying to get up i'm trying to be self-sufficient i'm trying to do it myself and it's not working well now i'm getting upset and the more upset i get because I knew I needed help, but I'd already said I don't need help, so I can't ask for help now that I don't need help even though I need help. The more upset I get, the more determined I get to do it on my own, but the more upset I get, the more unable I am to do it. And there is a cycle of self-sufficiency that's very ugly, is it not? You see a child do that? My girls are getting to that self-sufficient stage at nearly 16 months now. It's very ugly to see. It can be cute sometimes for a little while, but it's, it's, it's not. It's ugly to see a person try in their own might to do something when if you would just, if they would just let you help, if they would just let you teach them how to do it, save them time, effort, pain, possibly money, depending on the situation. But you know, self-sufficiency doesn't always go this way, does it? Many of you have heard before my talk about Dean Boyd. 
when I was in college, um, I went on a nursing home ministry every week. We went to a nursing home, and while the men ministered, and sometimes I would have a little bit of free time, I, would, I was the leader of the group, and I would go and uh, knock on some doors of some of the, the elderly people in this nursing home. One of the gentlemen was Dean Boyd. Uh, this was many years ago now. He was 96 at the time. I'm, I'm sure he's passed by now. He was 96 at the time, and Dean Boyd was a man who had lived his life. He was a tenured college professor, and every year he just told his students, I'm going on a trip, and he would pick a random place in the world. And he said, anyone that wants to go with me can go with me, and I'll be your guide. And so every year he did this, and of course part of the the stipulations of the trip is every person would give just a little bit extra, would pay just a little bit extra so that he could go for free. And so this was his way of being able to travel the world as he had all of his students pay for him and he was their tour guide. It's a wonderful setup. Every single time I visited him, he told me, travel, travel the world, get people to pay for you. This man, a tenured college professor, university professor, traveled the world, had married uh, his wife and they had lived together for 50 years before she passed. He had everything in his life that he wanted. He looked back upon his life with great contentment. And every week I went in there and I told him, Mr. Boyd, you know you're on your way to hell. You know you have not accepted Christ as your Savior. You know that you need what I'm telling you. And he says, no. He says, I lived a great life. I I, I had everything in this life. I have lived for 96 years without God. And I've been happy. And I've been healthy and I've enjoyed my life, and I've lived it to the full, then he'd always come back, you need to travel. Be sure to travel. Travel. And Mr. Boyd had children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. He looked upon his life with fondness. He said he had no regrets. And here was a man who had cast aside any need for God, who refused to need God. And while we see the ugliness of self-sufficiency when it drives a man to his own hurt, how much more ugly is self-sufficiency when it blinds a man to his real need? Dean Boyd was blinded to his real need. He didn't need to travel. He didn't need a great, comfortable life. He didn't need 96 years of health. What he needed was Jesus Christ. And he never saw it. I I don't know. I gave him the gospel so many times, perhaps when he was on his deathbed, he he made the decision to accept Christ. There were times, as I told you before, where he he had tears in his eyes of conviction, but he refused every time. So I don't know if we'll see him in heaven one day or not. But this second type of self-sufficiency... This type of self-sufficiency that doesn't just rest in this life but transcends beyond this life to the next is what Job speaks about in Job 21. And that's our second type, our second point. If you're taking notes, I don't need help, not just in this life, but I don't need help in the life to come. I don't need help in the life to come. Look with me again in Job 21 at what Job says in verses 10 through 15. He says, Their bull gendereth, and faileth not. Their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. And they take the timbrels and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth. 
and in a moment go to the grave, go down to the grave. Notice verse 14 and 15 there, though. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him, and what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Now we've already read these verses, but let's remember what Job is describing here. The wicked are healthy, they're happy. They need nothing. But as Job continues, he doesn't focus on a wicked man's life. He doesn't focus on the consequences and judgment of a wicked man in this life. What he focuses on is the days and the eternity following a wicked man's death. Now, from a historical human perspective, every man is going to die. We in this room who are born again are uh, anticipating Jesus Christ coming again. We would love it if he would rapture his church before we had to see death. And yet from a historical human perspective, that's the perspective we're working on this morning or working from, everyone in this room is going to die. Everyone in this room, in fact, is in the process of dying as their bodies are wearing down. Notice how Job highlights this in verses 16 through 20. He says, Lo, their good is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How oft is the candle of the wicked put out? Their days, I mean, their days will end. How oft cometh their destruction upon them? They will die. God distributeth sorrows in his anger. They are as the stubble before the wind, and as a chaff the storm carrieth away. Oftentimes, wicked, powerful men want to leave a legacy. They want to live on, and what consoles them in their power in their wealth is that people will be speaking their name for years to come and yet job says what is the man the wicked man when he dies he says as the chaff that's the piece of the grain that's not needed and as people would thresh wheat to separate the wheat from the chaff uh, in, in bible times they would often throw the wheat and the chaff into the air and as they threw it into the air the wind would catch the chaff because it was lighter and it would blow it away and no one cares where the chaff went. Nobody watched, oh, watch that chaff, let's see where it lands. Nobody cared. It was the chaff. And Job says that is what the wicked man is. When he dies, it's gone. Everything that he held to, everything that he worked for, everything in this life that was so dear to him is gone the moment he dies. The Egyptians tried to undo this, did they not? The Egyptians took all that they had, all of those kingly possessions, the most important things to the Egyptian pharaoh, and they buried it with him. And they put him in a, in a lovely tomb. Gold and silver and jewels all around this tomb so that he could have his jewels in the afterlife. Job says, and the scriptures say, it doesn't work that way. And so Job asks, look in verse 21, For what pleasure hath he, that's this wicked man, in his house after him, when the number of his months is cut off in the midst? When you die... When I die, what good is our house, our cars, our boat, our iPad, our computer, our watch, our shoes? What good are they when we're dead? Not a bit. Not a bit. What pleasure will you have once dead in those possessions that you own? So Job continues to describe the state of this man once he is dead. Verses 23 and 24, he describes the man who goes to the grave happy and healthy, full of years. In verse 25, he speaks of the man who dies in sorrow, weak and sickly with no one to care. 
But what is the common ground of the man that dies happy, healthy, and full of years, and the man that goes to the ground wicked, sickly, and full of cares? Where is the common ground upon which these men meet? Look at verse 26. They shall lie down alike in the dust, and the worms shall cover them. It doesn't matter how much money you do or don't have in this life. It doesn't matter what possessions you do or don't have in this life. It doesn't matter if you die at the age of 15, if you die at the age of 50, or if you die at the age of 100. You're all going to be put in the ground and worms are going to cover you. Your body is going to decompose. Of dust you are made, of dust you will return. And as Hebrews 9.27 so clearly puts it, it is appointed unto men once to die and after this, the judgment. And so the common ground of death for every man gives way to the common ground of judgment for every man. And this is Job's point in verses 29 through 31. Look at it with me. Have ye not asked them that go by the way? And do ye not know their tokens that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction? They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. Who shall declare his way to his face? And who shall repay him what he hath done? The wicked are reserved to the day of destruction, Job says. They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. The lesson is this, ladies and gentlemen. You can spend your whole life believing that you have what it takes to make it through. You can spend your whole life happy and healthy with money and your retirement accounts and your investments and everything can go great for you. And you can be up in years without any health difficulties and you can be strong and you can be capable and you can go to your grave thinking that all of the good things that you have done in this life and all of the ways that you've helped the poor and all of the the people that you've helped across the street and all of the things that you have done in this life will suffice you for the next but the fact of the matter is one day you will stand before God of the universe and you will be judged not by your standard but by His. And on that day what you need to ensure is that you have complied with His standard, not that you have done what you think is enough. What will you answer for when you stand before God one day? It will not be for how much money you have made in your life. It will not be how many people you made happy. It will not be how many children you raised to be good citizens. It will not be the many good social causes that you were a part of, you will stand before God and you will answer to Him for how you responded in this life to the inspired Word of God and how you responded to His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, our response to our message, to the lessons that Job is teaching in Job 21 this morning should be twofold. First, we need to ensure that we have a proper response to the gospel, a proper response for our eternity. The gospel, that word, is a word that literally means the good news. And the good news that is the gospel is this, that you, just like me, and every other man on this earth is a sinner. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You've sinned, I've sinned, we are all sinners. 
Now, this sin, as we know, the scriptures tell us, has caused you and has caused myself to be separated from God, from a God who is perfect and holy and cannot abide sin. God cannot let you into his presence because you're sinful and God cannot allow sin into his presence. Romans 3.23 tells us for all have sinned and because we have all sinned, it says we have come short of the glory of God. We have come short of his glory, of his standard, of the standard by which when you stand before God, he will judge you one day. Your sin has placed upon you a debt and it is a debt which you cannot pay. And so you, having no ability to save yourself, having no ability of good works or money that can get you into heaven, are destined to a sinner's hell. Hell, scriptures describe it to be a lake of fire, of torment for eternity. It is a just punishment for people who have refused the sovereignty of God in their lives, who have refused God as their creator, who have refused God as their savior. So Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin, the payment of sin, the just recompense of our sin is death. You say, Pastor, you told us just a minute ago that this is good news. Well, I know most of you have heard the gospel and the majority in this room have responded to the gospel. So you know where I'm going, but let's continue with the good part of this news. See, it is good news that we're all sinners. In a sense. Because if we weren't all sinners... then the salvation of Jesus Christ wouldn't do us any good. But we are all sinners. And because we can't pay our debt, because we can't do what we need, God sent someone to do it for us. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has paid the debt for you already. Jesus Christ has done for you what you can't do yourself. I've quoted to you only the first half of Romans 6.23. Let me give you the whole verse. See, the wages of sin is death. That's the first half of the verse. And if we stop there, it's bad news. But the second half of that verse is the good news. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ, who is God, came to earth, became a man, lived a sinless life. But even though he lived a sinless life, even though he lived a life free of offense, both before God and man, he was killed. He died upon the cross at the hand of sinners and as he bore the pain and the agony and the grief, he did so not to pay for his own sin for he was sinless, but to pay for your sin and for my sin. And because he is God, his death was sufficient, his blood was sufficient, his sacrifice was sufficient to cover your sin, to pay the penalty so that you could have eternal life. But like any gift, the gift of God must be received. The gift of God must be accepted. The gift of God must be appropriated. As I have told you many times, I could give you a gift, but if I'm holding that gift out to you and you never accept it, it's not yours. The gift has been purchased. It is being handed to you. It is being held out to you. But if you don't accept the gift for yourself, then that gift is never in your possession in the very same way. Salvation is a gift already bought and paid for. But if you don't accept it, it is not yours. And so John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave gift His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, 
Not whosoever was good in this life. Not whosoever did enough good things. Not whosoever was baptized. Not whosoever gave to their church. Whosoever believeth in him accepts the gift should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this great gift of salvation is before every man. For Jesus Christ died for the sins of every man, paid the penalty sufficient to cover the sins of every man. So what is it that keeps a man from receiving it? What is it that would cause a man to see the gift and to say, I don't want that? What is it that would cause Mr. Boyd, at 96 years of age, coming to the very end of his days, having lived a full life, to say, I don't need that gift? Self-sufficiency. A man who says, I've made it this far without God, I can make it the rest of the way. And you know what? If there is a God, I've been pretty good. And since I've been self-sufficient up to this point, why should I change now? If my goodness and my work ethic got me to the end of my life, why can't it get me into heaven? We just read the verses. Because your goodness and your self-sufficiency is not enough. And it can never be enough. And it never will be enough to get you into heaven. But it doesn't need to be that way. For the scriptures say that the man who will cast off his self-sufficiency, who will believe on Jesus Christ, who will recognize that he is a sinner, who will tell Jesus Christ, who will confess that he is, in fact, Savior, God, and King, confess that he died for your sins, confess that he paid the penalty you could not and ask him to save you from those sins. The scripture tells us whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can do that today if you have never done so. We had one young lady this week in our church that did that. If you say, Pastor, I'm not sure. I still don't quite understand. Please come see me after the service and I'll show you from the Bible how you can know that you're on your way to heaven. How you can know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. But there's a second response to be made. We talked about it at the beginning, and I believe more people in this room probably fall into this category. You are one in this room who has received the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have trusted Him to save you from your sins. You know that there's nothing you could do to earn your salvation. But you know, even though you trusted God with your eternity, you don't trust Him with this life. Even though you have given God the... the eternity that you will spend even though you have already said God I know I can't get myself into heaven I know that there's nothing to do so here I'm going to let you do it as Jesus Christ paid the penalty for me I accept that gift then you say okay but this life God this is mine you live a Christian life of self-sufficiency when troubles come you don't pray to God you grit your teeth and plow through when difficulties arise, you don't seek God's strength. You don't seek the help of fellow believers. You cinch your belt. You take your phone off the hook. You bear it upon your own shoulders and you put your shoulder to the plow and you get through it on your own. When you have a witnessing opportunity, you believe your knowledge, your understanding, your smooth speech is enough to get the job done. When someone asks you for wisdom, 
You don't seek the wisdom that is from above. You don't give them the wisdom that is from above. You give them everything that you've learned and everything that you've studied. All that knowledge and experience has taught you. You call yourself a Christian, but your reliance upon God ends at the gates of heaven. Now, perhaps, as I went through that list, something in your life stood out. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Don't ignore that. Perhaps, as I went through that list, all of them stood out. One of them stood out. Two of them stood out. Maybe... None of those stood out, but there's something else that the Holy Spirit is pointing at your life and saying, this is you. This is your self-sufficiency. This is you trying to do in your power, in your strength, what God says to do in His strength. Whatever the case may be, Job's words are for believers just like they are for the unbeliever in Job 20 and 21. When you die and you stand before God, and the Scriptures say that even believers will stand before God and give an account for their works... Those works will not determine whether they go to heaven or hell, but they will still account for them. All of that self-sufficiency, which perhaps went unnoticed on this earth, all of, that, all of those times where you just plowed through on your own, all of the ways in which you said, I don't need God to do this, will not go unnoticed before the throne of God. Now, you will not be turned into hell if you're a believer, but you will suffer loss. 1 Corinthians tells us. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of righteousness in us all. It's the enemy of righteousness unto salvation in the unbeliever. It's an enemy of the fruit of the Spirit, of righteousness through Christ in the believer. And so I ask you as we close, where is self-sufficiency in your life? Let's root it out. Let's find it identify it, root it out, get it out, so that we may say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God.